Sandy. Uh, good evening and welcome everybody. I'm Ilana Singh and I am co-chair of the EU Ames Ethics Advisory Board. And I'm so pleased to see everybody here tonight uh, for what is the first of what we hope will be a series of public dialogues around the EU Ames project, which we're going to hold in different countries uh, that are associated with the project. So I just have a, a few very short welcoming comments and reflections, and then we're going to move swiftly on to uh, the remainder of the program. So you may ask, why are we holding a public dialogue around the EU Ames project? And many of you, of course, will be familiar with the debates about neurodiversity and the autism rights movement, um, about the role of pharmaceutical industry funding in autism treatments, and debates around prevention and cure in autism. So for all these reasons, we want to hold this public dialogue. And we really feel strongly that these issues and other issues should be discussed both internally in research programs and externally with the public so that we can all get a better handle on what stakes we have in these kinds of questions around these kinds of concerns in autism. And I know that the researchers in the EU Ames project are deeply committed to this kind of dialogue as well. But you may say, but this dialogue is happening after the EU Ames project has already begun. So what could we do at the beginning of these projects to actually have input from the public at the start? And it's true that the EU Ames project has already begun, but this project is really a foundational project in Europe for the way, a way of doing research and around treatments in autism um, and a platform for thinking about the integration of research and ethics and public engagement. So we will take what we learn from these public dialogues and think forward to the next projects that spin off this project. And there will be more and more projects that come out of these kinds of consortia. So I hope that you see yourselves not just as commenting on this particular EU Ames project, but thinking about the future of research in this area. Finally, I think for tonight's dialogue, um, because some of these issues can be difficult um, and very personal for people, it's probably worth remembering that whatever role you see people playing tonight and speaking from, it's unlikely to be the only role they have in relation to autism. So we may have parents of people with autism who are also researchers of autism, and we may have people who are living under the description of autism who are also researchers. All of us, I think, many of us certainly come to this dialogue tonight with autism having multiple claims on us. And I think that that's worth remembering as we're listening to people speaking. And hearing really from all of you is a, a, the most important part of this dialogue this evening. So I hope that you will see this dialogue not as a conversation between us and them, but really as an attempt for all of us to get to better and deeper understanding of all of the concerns that are raised around this project and all of the opportunities that are raised by this project as well. And I think our panel tonight and our speakers really exemplify the complexity of autism and how it is uh, something that is a lived experience for many of us in our lives in many ways. So we're now going to move to showing you the EU Ames um, short video. And we do that um, because we want to orient everybody uh, around the project. Um, 
so you all have a common orientation. And then I'm going to hand over to Sandy Starr, who is the chair of the panel tonight. Uh, I invite you, those of you who are tweeting, to tweet at hashtag tweeting autism. Um, and I meant to say that there are no fire drills planned for tonight. So if the fire alarm goes off, please proceed in an orderly fashion, as orderly as possible, out that door. And Des, are you going to remind me of something? All right, we're now going to turn down the lights for the video. Thank you, and welcome again. I've called Rosalie my great mystery ever since she was very young. There is her as a person, and then there is her with her handicap. In this house, she can be by herself for about 30 seconds before we have to check on her. We have to watch her at all times. Autism is a complex disorder that affects social interactions, language, and emotions. In Europe, Nearly one out of every 100 people is afflicted by the disorder, the diagnosis of which has increased fivefold in the last 20 years. And yet, no specific treatment is available. However, researchers are making progress. The latest advances in imaging and genetics could revolutionize how autism is treated. Today, Europe is taking the lead in research into autism therapies, Major advances are being reported by the EU Ames project, which is supported by the Innovative Medicines Initiative, or IMI. IMI is a public-private partnership between the European Union and the European pharmaceutical industry, with a budget of 2 billion euros. Thomas Bourgeron is a researcher at the Institut Pasteur in Paris. He and his team are searching for autism genes. First, the patient is seen by a psychiatrist, and the autism is which is very important. Then a blood sample is drawn and we isolate the DNA from this sample. The DNA contains three billion letters, A, T, G and C, in a double helix formation. What we see here is an entire chromosome, number 11, for a particular individual. And we can take a virtual tour of this genome, and sometimes we see this, the signal drops. And this drop in the signal shows that this child has lost one, two, three, four, five million letters. And when he has lost these five million letters, he has also lost all of those genes. Everything the laboratory does for this child is focused on figuring out, among all these genes, which ones are responsible for his autism. There are dozens of genes responsible for autism. Many are involved in the development of neurons, and more specifically in the function of the synapses, the points of contact between the neurons. When there is a genetic defect, the synapses are weakened. At this laboratory, researchers have created mice with a gene that has been deactivated in this way. These mice have been mutated into a gene that has been associated with autism. This is an example of social interaction. We will look at the types of contact that they have with their fellow mouse and whether this contact is normal or not, whether there is a lot of contact or not. For this experiment, we have two cages. In the first one, we have two normal mice. In the second, 
we have one normal mouse and one mutated mouse. On the left, we see that both normal mice seek out contact with one another. One on the right, the mutated mouse is not interested in her fellow mouse and prefers to explore her cage alone. With these experiments, we have validated this model as an autism model to one day try to identify these anomalies in order to correct the deficiencies we have seen in these mice. Autism is a complex disease because there's a huge spectrum in the symptoms and uh, in the expression of the uh, symptoms. And we don't speak about autism, we speak about autism spectrum disorder because it sort of uh, tells you that there's a severity in the degree of the symptoms from, very ab from nearly absent or absent to very, very clear and debilitating. In an effort to improve autism diagnosis, a broad study has been launched at King's College in London. The objective is to identify commonalities among different autistic brains. We try to use the brain information in a way that uses its richness, its three-dimensional richness. So if you imagine, for example, the surface of the brain looks like the Alps or the surface of a planet. So we try to take all the three-dimensional information that's available to us about the peaks and the troughs and the valleys and the rivers to put that together to say, what's the picture of the brain in someone with autism? And can we use that picture to identify individuals with and without autism? So what we can see here are these social regions, which are in blue. And these are all to do with how we interact with other people. And we can also see these language regions down here, which are more in red and yellow. And we, can, we found that these brain regions, their three-dimensional architecture, really helped us discriminate between people who were and were not autistic. But let's be clear, we're not saying that we would use these brain images alone. What we are saying is that just like if you went to a, another specialist in medicine, we would use these images in combination with taking a clinical history to see if we can come up with a better diagnosis for you. What we're now discovering in this project is that you need to bring all these different new technologies together. So imaging, where you can see what's going on in the brain, the knowledge about genetics, the knowledge about proteins. You take all this together and you can develop what we call biomarkers to have something to measure. Because when you start giving medicines, you need to have some kind of measurement. We call it endpoint to study whether it's going to be effective or not. Right now, what matters most for parents is to see their child progress. Their hope is for research to advance, so their child can become more independent. It's over the long term that it becomes difficult to manage. When the child is small and you're kind of fighting for the child to develop, there's a lot of energy, but then it becomes exhausting. She stops developing, there are things that she used to like to do that she doesn't like anymore. We need help. We have to rely on qualified, knowledgeable people to raise our child, because we cannot do it alone. This is something that is really very painful, and it always will be so. To address the challenges raised by this extremely complex disease, it was necessary to launch a unique initiative where uh, all the stakeholders would join effort. This is exactly what the Innovative Medicines Initiative did by launching a consortium 
where you have all the major pharmaceutical companies uh, involved in neuroscience working together with the best universities, biotech companies, and also involving patients' organization and those knowing the real-life problems of the patient in order to yeah, develop this unique collaborative approach. Right, thank you. Uh, my name's Sandy Starr, um, and I'm chairing this evening's event, Treating Autism, the Promises, Perils and Politics of Pharmaceutical Intervention. I'm sure we could launch into a very lively discussion having, based on us all having just watched that video alone. Um, but before we involve all of you, and you will get to have a say, um, we're going to have um, a few brief presentations. A bit about me first. So I, uh, as Elena said, many of us have several roles in relation to autism. Um, I'm someone who's interested in autism professionally. Um, I work at the Progress Educational Trust, and that's a charity uh, that works in the fields of genetics, assisted conception, and embryo and stem cell research. Um, and some aspects of autism come within our remit. I'm interested in autism politically uh, because of a long-standing interest in the politics of disability, uh, identity, and psychiatry. And I'm interested in autism personally uh, because I was given a diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome when I was a teenager. I'm also a member of the Ethics Advisory Board uh, of EU AIMS, um, the, the project you've just seen the film about, which is, is short for European Autism Interventions, a multi-centre study for developing new medications. The Ethics Advisory Board uh, is co-chaired by Eleanor, whom you heard from earlier. And tonight uh, we'll be discussing the research you've just heard about in the video and issues raised by this research um, with the panel of speakers you see here and then with input from all of you. Um, we're going to begin with a series of short presentations, and the first person to speak, sitting on my far right, uh, will be one of the leaders of this research project, um, Declan Murphy. You, you'll actually have just seen him interviewed uh, in that video. He's academic coordinator of the EU AIMS project, professor of psychiatry and brain maturation here at King's College London's Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience, as you have to remember to say now. Uh, and he's a consultant psychiatrist at the National Autism Unit and at the Behavioural Genetics Clinic at South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. Declan will be followed by uh, Richard Ashcroft on my immediate right, um, who, like uh, Eleanor, is a co-chair of the Ethics Advisory Board uh, of EU AIMS. He's also a professor of bioethics at Queen Mary University of London. Um, he's co-director of the Centre for the Study of Incentives in Health. Uh, he's a deputy editor of the Journal of Medical Ethics. Um, and one of, one of the reasons why he's uh, personally interested in this area is that he has an autistic son. Um, speaking next will be Virginia Bovell, um, on my immediate left, who is Vice President of Ambitious About Autism, uh, which is a national charity for autistic children and young people. Um, Virginia is also a researcher at the University of, of Oxford's Ethox Centre, 
and her research focuses on the exact topic we are examining tonight, uh, the promises, uh, perils and politics of seeking to treat autism. Um, and Virginia, uh, too, is mother to an autistic young man. We're expecting a fourth speaker. Um, is Russell in the room, Russell Stronach? If not, I will be calling upon the audience even more so uh, to uh, perhaps offer more of an autism rights perspective um, on the issues we'll be uh, discussing this evening. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll begin with the three speakers we've got. They're going to speak for a maximum of 10 minutes. I'll keep, I will keep them to time. Um, after that, I'll invite them to respond to each other briefly so we get a better sense of where their views might converge and diverge. Um, and then after that, the most important part of the evening, uh, I'll invite you, the audience, uh, to put questions uh, and comments to them. Um, and one final thing, Ilana uh, did, did say, and it's on the screen behind me, to use this, this hashtag, treating autism, if you're tweeting uh, from the event or if you do it after the event. Um, I'm going to try and compile a storify of, of the tweets uh, afterwards, and I'll be much more likely to find yours if it has that hashtag on it. So please do remember to do it. So without any further ado, uh, Declan, can I invite you to step up to the lectern okay. and tell us uh, about EU aims and about the promises, perils and politics of pharmaceutical intervention in autism. Okay. Thank you, Sandy. Uh, so what I'll do then is I'll just quickly break my comments down into three, if that's okay. Firstly, very briefly, to give you an overview of EU aims. Then secondly, I'll tell you what are the difficulties that we think and the, what are the promises, the perils and the politics. So EU aims, as you saw, is an initiative that's funded by the Innovative Medicines Initiative in the EU, where it's linking up academia together with colleagues in the pharmaceutical industry. And our aim is not to design new treatments for autism or to test new treatments for autism. It's to try and understand autism better so that we might be able to identify new treatment targets. Although there's a focus on biology, inverted commas, we'll also be carrying out work looking at the way that people who are diagnosed with autism think and their strengths and their difficulties so that we can also begin to think about what might be some of the cognitive differences and strengths and how can we work with those in addition to pharmaceutical uh, interventions. So what we're trying to do is to say to make better progress we need to work together. It's no good having clinician scientists in one half of a room and basic neuroscientists in another part of a room and psychologists in another part of a room, not talking to each other. We all need to talk together. And so progress in one area really can very rapidly impact upon the work that people are doing in other areas so that we learn from each other more in real time rather than sequentially so that we can make much more rapid progress. So that's the overall ethos of what we're doing. In terms of what that means, what are the, the promises, the perils, and the politics, I mean, why are we doing it? Sandy said, did I have any slides I wanted to show? And I said, no. Uh, normally, my favorite slide is a blank slide, which is my horrible standing joke, which is the, this is the effective treatments for autism slide. Uh, we actually don't have any if we talk about core symptoms of autism as currently clinically diagnosed. Some people are, feel there's more an evidential base around psychological interventions. That's certainly true in some aspects. But certainly in pharmacological interventions, there's very, very, very limited evidence for the efficacy of any interventions for core symptoms. In fact, I mean, really none. So what we need to do is to see if we can help and design new treatments. 
But this is where the promises and the perils come in. What happens currently is that if you do have a diagnosis with an autistic spectrum disorder and you're diagnosed, you're highly likely to be treated with a pharmacological intervention that's likely to be ineffective. There's no evidence base currently for a lot of the clinical approaches. So I think the first promise is we can't do worse than we're currently doing. Right? We just cannot do worse. So we can look to make things better. Then I think some of the perils are, and the politics are, that it's a bit like that terrible joke, you know, you say potato and I say potato. Just because someone does, say, cognitive research or health services research, it doesn't mean they don't also carry out biological research. Likewise, if you carry out biological research, it doesn't mean you don't also carry out health services research and think about the importance of putting all sorts of treatments together. Because I'd put to you that it's highly unlikely, in fact, I'd say impossible, that one treatment, inverted commas, is going to work for everybody. It's just not. And I, why do I say that? I say that because, number one, people are people. Firstly, not all people would want a treatment or need a treatment. And then secondly, of those people who do want a treatment or need a treatment, there'll be very many different varieties of individuals there. So the key is, how do we work with that individual to understand what it is that's most going to help that individual improve? So how is it that we can introduce a personalised, tailored treatment for that individual rather than just give them something off the shelf that we'd give to 100 other people? And so in that help, in that way, hopefully improve better, but also reduce their exposure to either ineffective pharmacological compounds, which would have side effects, or ineffective psychological treatments, which would take a long time. And so, you know, how do we make, make that better? In terms of the politics, there's all sorts of politics that are around, but, you know, politics is what you make it. I would say that some of the key things that we're faced with and working with are things like, how is it that we can include individuals with an autistic spectrum disorder or autistic spectrum condition who may not be able to express their own wishes? So how can we work with individuals who are typically excluded from most studies? So we made a significant effort to try and include individuals in our studies who are, inverted commas, lower functioning. In other words, they'd have a reduction in their overall intellectual level. So normally they would be excluded. The other thing that we're trying to do is to include women, because women are typically excluded from studies of individuals uh, with autism. So we're making a very big uh, kind of over-recruitment exercise in terms of that. So what are the promises? The promises are we can't do any worse and we can only try and make things better. What are the perils are I say potato, you say potato, but I think we're all working in the same way. And the politics are really trying to include people that are normally excluded. But here's the other politics too that we need to keep in mind is that we can't just focus on what I would call core symptoms because a lot of individuals with autistic diagnoses also have a whole host of other things going on, such as depression or anxiety or school needs, etc. And actually, probably in the short term, we can make most progress by helping out with those things for which we know we can have effective treatments in some individuals. So whilst we're talking today probably about treatments for core inverted commas autism, actually it's absolutely crucial that we don't forget that probably in the short term we can make the most progress 
but I work with those individuals who have comorbid mental health problems or societal problems or educational problems to try and improve their outcome. With that, I'll finish and I'll hand over to Cindy. Thank you, Declan. We'll save applause for the end. Um, Richard, would you like to step up? Thank you. Um, I've spoken about autism and ethics on a number of occasions, um, both formally and informally. And the difficulty I always face is, yeah, I'm a professor of bioethics, I'm a philosopher, I write about ethics professionally, I've served on a number of committees and you know, do all the things that academics are supposed to do. But I'm also a parent, and my son is eight years old. He was diagnosed just after his third birthday, and he's doing well. Um, the first time I spoke in public about these things was just after he had his diagnosis, and I had a somewhat public meltdown trying to talk about it. But the reason for the public meltdown wasn't so much his condition as my adjustment to it, and it wasn't so much my adjustment to it as a parent, although that was a big part of it, it was also how did I come to terms with trying to think academically about something that had just become the most important thing in my life. And I still wrestle with that problem. And I still wrestle with that problem in contexts which I sometimes choose to find myself in, like this one and working with EU aims, and sometimes not. But what I've come to understand is that's partly because I was thinking about ethics the wrong way. It's not about you know, deriving abstract principles and applying them in a deductive way to situations. I don't know that I ever really thought that, but I tried to live that way. I tried to practice my work that way. It is about trying to understand how people live their lives and how they find ways of living those lives well and how they find ways of flourishing in those lives and what are the things that impede them in doing so. And the reason I introduce all this is partly to undermine my status as an expert, because in this context I don't think I am an expert, but partly also to say, well, if we're thinking about ethics and autism, perhaps that's the right way to do it. Perhaps we should start from human well-being, human flourishing, human experience, and then think about what that means for living as an autistic person or living with autistic people and that will tell us something important about how we think about treating it and how we treat it. Notice the ambiguity in that last sentence. We treat it. How we means two different things, doesn't it? It means how we deal with it, how we respond to it, how we cope with it. It also means how we medicate it or how we give it surgery or so on. So there's the medical sense of treat and there's the common ordinary language sense of treat. And these two things come together very neatly in the EUM's context because, as you can see from the film and as you can hear from Declan's very uh, thoughtful introductory remarks, um, there is both a model of how we, they, think about what autism is as well as a model of how they think, how we think it ought to be responded to and what things we might try. So one of the questions is, what are we trying to do in treating autism? 
And another question is, who defines that? And in whose interests is it working? Now, one of the problems in autism is it's so heterogeneous and so diverse. And the old joke in the autism world is, when you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Um, and my son's very different from Sandy. He's better looking, for one thing. <laughs> and also very different from the young woman we met in the film. If, in a sense, we did meet her, because she didn't address us. Maybe she couldn't. Maybe she wasn't asked. Maybe she wasn't able. We don't know. That wasn't really the point of the film, but it was one of the things I was reflecting on when I was watching it. The, the ways in which autism is present in these very different people's lives and in the lives of several people in this room is very diverse, therefore. So what we're trying to do for each of those people or with each of those people or in response to each of those people may be very different. So that's one difficulty, is if we say we are looking for a treatment for autism, it's not so clear what that will be, because it's not so clear what this autism is that we're trying to treat. Now, there are lots of stories we can tell, very well-grounded, evidence-based, scientifically realist stories, but stories nonetheless about the way the brain works or the way genes work or the way brains and genes co-create an environment and so on and so on and so on. And each of those will pick out some things as more salient than others in what we ought to do. But until that emerges as a more coherent set of stories, we're still going to be with Declan's blank page, I suspect. What EUM certainly will do is advance our understanding of autisms and the way they come about and the way they develop and the way they play out in people's biological and psychological lives. Some of that will tell us some things are important about treatment, sometimes it won't. We don't know. That's how science works. If we knew the answer, we wouldn't need to do it. But we always need to keep in mind, I think, these questions that I started out with. Who's it for? Why? And who decides? Who's it for? Is it for the autistic people themselves? Or is it for someone else? Now, I work because I am a parent. I'm very conscious that a lot of the things I do with my son are on some level about my needs and my expectations, or, if I'm a bit less egocentric, our needs and our expectations. He's in a mainstream primary school. They work to a certain framework. There are expectations of how children will be raised and educational goals which are supposedly common to all children. And inclusion and special needs inclusion is about trying to conform to that as closely as possible. And we work out an accommodation with that. But the starting template is human life as normal, as prescribed by Western middle class society, okay? So that's one set of things. Is, it, is, it, is this really about his needs or is it about someone else's? And that's a question we always have to keep in mind. We may well conclude that this is actually, that whatever the treatment that Declan and colleagues come up with, really is actually for the needs of the autistic people. 
But we have to keep in mind that it may not be. Some of you may start from that assumption. I don't think we should start from that assumption, but we should start with that question. The second is what? And in my first public attempt to talk about these things, I made a very strong claim about the way in which biomedical science is made around the things that biomedical scientists are interested in. And there's a priority of biomedical science over everything else, for example, educational research, social work, research, and so on. I've softened my view somewhat as time has gone on, but I still, you still just look at the relative, relative spend on research and relative spend on services. And the things that are important um, and how they're defined as important aren't necessarily driven by the answer to the first question of who is this for. They're driven by other structural factors. And the third thing we have to keep in mind is the context in which all this takes place. I think it's perfectly possible that we'll have really useful pharmaceutical <coughs> interventions which help with some, if not all, of the symptoms, the sort of side effects, if you like, of autistic life, while leaving untouched core autistic traits. And that may, in fact, be a good thing. If you take the neurodiversity idea seriously, you may not want to remove core autistic traits. You may want to make life with autism easier, though. So um, that may be where we go. But that's in a social context in which I'm just teetering on the verge of saying some ill-advised things about current government policy about support to people with disabilities but I suspect many of you know what I would like to say if I was feeling slightly less fettered by academic propriety. You're teetering on the verge of overrunning as well. Also, always. <laughs> always. I, 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 don't have a th I may have a theory of mind but I don't have a theory of time. Um, so, you've got to think about who's it for, what's it for, and where is it taking place. Those are the three things I want always to keep in mind when thinking about the ethics of autism treatment. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Hold. Virginia. Thank you, Sandy, and thank you to the um, Ethics Advisory Board for, I think, a really, really important event. Um, when we're talking about 30 million euros, I believe, involving huge amounts of um, intellectual endeavour, um, there is a public accountability issue, um, and I think it is high time we have this event. So, well done, everybody who's organised it. I was billed as um, Vice President of Ambitious About Autism, and that is true, but I want to um, stress that all that I'm about to say, I'm saying is personal opinion, just in case I lumber them with any unpalatable things. Um, they are not represented by me here tonight, um, so um, th that needs to be said. I'm going to talk mainly as a mother, um, although, as Sandy said, I am trying to research these issues and trying to finish a doctorate at the moment. One of the things I've done in the past is um, be involved in various attempts to encourage research into stakeholder priorities in autism research um, in various ways. And there are also charities in the UK who've done something similar, Research Autism and Autistica. 
Um, and I suppose one of the interesting ethical issues that's thrown up is that as far as I'm aware, and please tell me if I'm wrong, so far those pieces of research haven't identified stakeholders clamouring for the type of initiative that is EU aims. Um, and so we have to think about who drives all these initiatives and, and what the power issues are and who are the right people to make decisions about the direction of research. The other thing that I think needs to be stated openly, the elephant in the room in a way, is the involvement of the pharmaceutical companies. Um, now the cynics will say, well of course they want to find a treatment, don't they, because then they can make lots of money. Um, and especially with Declan's blank piece of paper, you know, there's this sense of maybe anything will be better than nothing. I want to say my own view, I'm, I'm less cynical than that particular perspective, and I suppose that's because it would be curmudgeonly of me, because my son and I have both benefited enormously from pharmaceutical interventions um, for various, very different reasons, um, paid for thankfully by our wonderful National Health Service, because otherwise we would be completely bankrupt by now. So yes, there is the profitability of the drug companies and we cannot be naive and assume that everything that they do is altruistic. But equally, I would say, hands up to them, they've done a really good job in a lot of people's cases. I'm gonna make one big point and then ask a series of questions. Um, and my main big point really follows on, I guess, from what Declan and Richard have said. Notwithstanding what was said in that video about autism as a disease, clearly treating autism is not like treating a standard illness. And it isn't a straightforward proposition to seek to treat autism wholesale as one unified thing. The heterogeneity of autism has been referred to. Um, and I think that is really, really big challenge for us if we're looking to find core symptoms because, I mean, Richard's talked about his son and how he differs, differs from Rosalie in the video and how he differs from Sandy. And, and likewise, my son, I mean, I struggle to almost to see the relevance of looking at core symptoms when somebody like Sandy is such an excellent chair, he's brilliant at what he does, etc. And there's my lovely Danny, who is an excellent human being and brilliant at what he does, but he has nothing in common with Sandy, as far as I can tell. And if he has common biology, I struggle with the relevance of that. And I'll say a bit more about this. Taking on board what Richard said, um, if we look at this thing that is autism, that is so diverse in its representation, we can do maybe two different things if we're curious. We can look into the biology to see how we can help, because clearly a lot of people with autism have very difficult lives for a whole array of reasons. Or we look at the lives and as Richard said, we start from an issue of human well-being and we say, what is impeding the well-being of these individuals in their lives? And I wonder if the answers will be in any way the same. 
if we look down a test tube or look in a brain scan or if we actually look at people's lives. And the examples I give, um, my friend Sue is here somewhere. I know that her son Elliot, what he really needs at the moment is a freedom pass and a job. And he's autistic. He is a healthy young man. I don't think he has any mental health problems. He's a delight. He's gloriously autistic. And I don't think he needs treating in any way for his autism. It's my view as someone who's known and loved Elliot for a long time. My Danny, he certainly needs pharmaceutical intervention and there to address his gastrointestinal problems. The one drug he's on which is marginally connected with his autism is risperidone. And that's to help him with meltdowns and over-anxiety and over-arousal. And these are typical of quite a few people with autism, clearly, but they're not the core symptoms of autism. You know, they're not in the um, actual diagnostic key issues that define autism. So I believe there are a number of questions we need to be asking, and I really welcome the dialogue, and I really welcome what Declan said, that there will be conversations to be had as part of EU AIMS. The questions I feel that are relevant are, what aspects of autism are genuinely and inherently debilitating, and what are simply about being different in this world? If there are some inherent debilitations, do these apply across the spectrum? Or are they so individualized that developing blanket treatments, even for a subsection, starts to be quite challenging? Is it appropriate or indeed possible to seek core biological commonalities for such heterogeneity? Are the things that Sandy might need, or Elliot might need, or Richard's son might need, or my son might need, are they sufficiently similar to justify seeking out common biomarkers with a view to common pharmacological intervention? I don't have the answers to these questions, but I think they're urgent, and I hope that there will be more ways of all of us discussing them. And I suppose my message to the scientists and clinicians who are a million times cleverer than me. You do need us, and that's autistic people and those who love autistic people, to help you identify what, if any, aspect of the lives of our people need treatment in the first place. There's only so far that laboratories and brain scans are going to get you in telling you what is relevant in terms of treatment. And... I hope that this is just the beginning of some meaningful conversations. It would be great if some of the, probably the sidelines, the side effects, the pressures linked with the difficult lives that some autistic people have. If we can find ways of helping, lovely. And clearly the pharmaceutical companies want to get a return on their investment. I don't think they're going to happen without an open, equal discussion amongst all the stakeholders. And I feel, to date, the people who live the lives have been left out in the cold, rather. Can we now thank our speakers?
just before I go out to the audience, I'm going to give the speakers a quick chance to respond to one another. Um, I'll begin with you, Declan. You can pick up on what you like, but I, I, I think it would be particularly interesting to hear your views on Virginia's remarks about, you know, nobody necessarily clamouring for a project like EU aims, at least not among the stakeholders Virginia is familiar with. You may disagree. And it's going to come up, but the contentiousness of, of characterising autism in terms of disease, treatment, symptoms, and so on and so forth, which not everybody would. Well, I mean, I think the thing to say, from my perspective at least, is I think there's just a huge amount of commonality between what we've all been saying, really, that we've got to think of individuals rather than sort of group diagnostic labels. I think everyone accepts that. Um, in terms of the people clamouring for it, I don't think anyone's ever clamoured for anything I do, that's, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, but um, the reason that EU aims uh, came to arise was actually very, very significant pressure from uh, the community and their representatives throughout Europe and internationally. That was the reason why it arose. Richard, um, you made the point that it's not so clear what we're trying to treat because autism is not sufficiently well defined. Now, Russell's not here, but I know he bends my ear about it so much that I suspect he would make the point. He finds he struggles to understand why one would embark on an autism research project if one did not have a coherent, did not proceed from a coherent view of autism. Now, it seems when grants are applied for nowadays, it's a, it's a feature, not a bug to say you're researching a heterogeneous condition, you'll find out what it, what, you'll define it along the way. There seems to be a logical, I can, seems to be a logical practical problem with this, and perhaps you as a philosopher could help us unpick it. Um, okay, psychiatrists may now throw rocks at me because I'm gonna say this isn't specific to autism, this is specific to psychiatry. <laughs> the, the diagnostic labels which psychiatrists have, have, have developed uh, often go by um, phenomenology, the, you know, symptoms and signs rather than underlying causes and that's, that's just how it is. Um, it, it, there are philosophical reasons why that might be the best we can do um, but even if that's not the case it's just where we are in the history of science that we're trying to do better and build better biopsychosocial models of disorders and, and various kinds of human suffering but we haven't got there yet. No. Um, that's just, we have to live with that. Of course. I mean, actually, I completely agree with what you've said, um, but the thing I'd like to stress to the audience as well is that um, it's not just psychiatry here. The whole of medicine is like this. So if I say diabetes, my next bit would be it's a heterogeneous disorder. Because there's lots of roots into diabetes, there's lots of different types of diabetes, cellular underpinnings of it, but the blood test for diabetes gives you the one result, diabetes, but it's a heterogeneous disorder. Same as breast cancer, same as heart disease. So what we're dealing with here isn't unique, and they've been solved uh, in other, not solved, partially solved uh, in other bits of medicine, um, but doesn't take away from your point, but... No, no, it's all right. Okay. I'll leave it up. Um... I agree with a lot of what's been said so far, but I think we have to bear in mind, and maybe this is true of other psychiatric conditions, but I don't think it's true of diabetes, that autism links quite closely in some people's minds with a sense of who they are. That you can be a diabetic person and say, I am me and I have diabetes. 
but there will be many people in the autism rights movement, and because Russell's not here, again, I feel I should say it, who see, they don't say I'm a person with autism, they say I'm an autistic person. My autism is me. If you take away my autism, you take away me, which is what Anya Ustavesky, um, an autistic advocate, said. I'm quoting her. Um, and in that sense, autism is very different from other areas of medicine. You, it's not just a little bit of someone that you can treat and make better. It is their whole, people will say, it is my whole entity, it is me. Um, and... So there are additional ethical issues around autism that don't apply in all areas of medicine. And I don't just think it's the high-functioning, able people who have the ability to talk about their own identity. I would say it's true of my son. Um, I know the difference between an ill autistic person and a well autistic person. And thank God he's well at the moment and he's autistic. And I think if we addressed his autism, we would be addressing who he is. And, and that's a profoundly ethical challenge, I think. Quickly, Richard, because we're going to bring the audience in. Yeah, that, there was just one thing I, I did want to say about precisely this point about well versus ill autistic person. When I was talking about well-being, one of the really important questions is, is to try to understand, with the help of autistic people, what is, what, what is life going well for them? rather than being prescriptive about, well, I know what makes my life go well, so I know what will make your life go well. And actually, a lot of the interventions that for autism people now are premised on the idea that what you would really like to be is me. And I'm pretty, I can tell you, you don't want to be me. So, <laughs> so let's work from there. I just clarify one thing before it goes out. Let me be very clear to the audience here. I'm absolutely not saying that autism is like diabetes. I'm absolutely <laughs> not saying that. What I am saying is the concept of disease heterogeneity or disorder heterogeneity is not unique to autism. That's all I'm saying. Okay. In a moment, I'll bring the audience in. I know, if, hold on a moment. If people doing the roving mics can... Oh, you're ready. Fantastic. Just, I'll explain the format very quickly, then I'll bring you in. I'm going to take points and questions in batches um, before returning to the panel to respond. That lets them reflect on things. Um, but rest assured, if I think they're dodging a question, I will press them on it. Uh, if, when you ask a question or make a point, you'd like to say your name, you're more than welcome to. Uh, why you're interested in this subject, you're more than welcome to. If you represent an organisation, uh, you're more than welcome to. But you're not obliged uh, to do any of these things. Um, we're going to try to produce an audio recording of this evening's uh, events. So if you'd rather not, you know, not be named on that recording, then just don't give your name. It's, that's, that's absolutely fine. Um, we have a couple of roving mics, and so that we can all hear you, and so that you get picked up on the recording, if you could wait for the mic to come to you, and if you could make sure you speak into it, close your mouth, it sounds like a simple thing, but you'd be surprised, um, then, then that would be fantastic. Now, a gentleman here was yeah. first off the start. Wait for the mic to come to you, please, sir. And can we get the other mic up this side so we're ready for other points? Please. Right. My name's Aaron Linton-Smith, and um, I'm actually representing Autistic Nottingham. Um, basically, what I wanted to do is pick up on... Is it Virginia? Yeah. I just wanted to pick up on that point. Where I am in the spectrum, um, when you say autism is a disease, uh, I find that uh, phrase, disease, offensive from where I am because I'm living with autism, and the benefits that it gives me in terms of lifelong benefits that I've gained, uh, I regard as, as a God-given talent. 
and I've had an immensely valuable life as a result of being autistic. So from my point of view, it's, it's actually a privilege being on the autistic spectrum. So when, when you're using the term disease, I can, see, I can see why parents with severely autistic people uh, regard that as disease. But when you're talking across a whole spectrum, from where we're standing, it's, it, it, it's not a disease uh, it, it, at all. And I think the, the, the term shouldn't be used. Okay, thank you. Can we move the microphone to the row, a couple of rows behind? Um, yep, and then down across. Thank you very much. Hello. Um, sorry to bring another big elephant into the room. You're not going to like this one, whether you're a pharmaceutical company or not. And uh, I hope nobody knows me before. Um, I'm part of the Rational Autistic Society. Don't laugh. Um, that's so you can tell your mum what we do. But if you've heard of us at all, um, you probably know us as Cannabis for Autism. Now, um, if you'll just bear with us a second. Uh, now, for the thousands or perhaps tens of thousands of autistic adults who actually have been already using cannabis to treat their own symptoms, some of them for decades, so we're not debating whether they're actually there or not. We found them. We're going to find them all. They're there. They're not going away. They've all found that something that the government's done has doubled the price of their medicine over the last six years. What are we going to do about it? There's tens of thousands of people and they're now paying double for their street cannabis to treat them, their autism. Uh, what are we going to do to help those people? On the 30th, they're actually debating it in Parliament. Um, there's a good chance, if you know anyone, if you know any MPs, anyone with any clout, if you can ask them to just free that plant so the public can use it responsibly, a lot of autistic people can just get off your radar straight away. Thank you. Thank you. Can you pass the microphone actually in front of the lady in front of you there? That's right, the row in front. There we go. Thank you. Okay. Please. Uh, my name's Hilary. I'm wearing three different hats. I'm parent of a 25-year-old young man with autism. I'm a medical practitioner. I've also got a sort of semi-professional interest in uh, social policy um, and history of medicine. Um, first... There's a particular, within the heterogeneity of autism, there are people like my son. My son, I thought, was going to be really brilliant when he was, a young, when he was in his first year of life. I wondered how his older brother would ever cope with him. He talked really early. He walked really early. Everything was going swimmingly. He certainly had shared attention. And then, in the middle of his second year of life, things started to go wrong. And I differ from Virginia. I actually don't think that autism is who my son is. I feel like the autism, autism took over my child and took away a person I knew and left me with a young man who's now 25, who lives in a res residential care home, which costs the taxpayer upwards of 200,000 a year. He's lovely in many ways. He's, uh, he actually is quite social, but he gets incredibly distressed. Last Friday, I traveled on the train with him and the subject of going to the fish and chip shop that evening came up, as I knew it would, because it's the first thing he wants to say when we meet up. And I broke it to him that we weren't going that night. We were going Saturday lunchtime. And the distress, and I mean, 
only those who have a child like this could ever know what it's like. Um, and I've got to move on. So Please. I will say the fact that he costs 200,000 a year plus to the taxpayer does bring another ethical issue in because at the moment there's no alternative and that money has to be paid. It would be unethical in my view as a medical practitioner to avoid providing something that might actually enable some of that money to be used for other things. Very interesting. I'll take two more points before going back to the panel, and I'll go to these two people behind here. I've not forgotten the rest of the room. I'll come back to you in the next round. Yes, please, and then opposite on. Please. Hi, my name's uh, Jenny, and I'm um, a mental health worker in the field of autism, and I'm also a counsellor working um, specifically with people with autism or members of their family, their spouses, and so on. And I train people to understand and work with children and adults on the spectrum. And I'm also the parent of an owl, 26-year-old uh, with autism. Um, and while I agree very much with Virginia that autism, we're not, I don't regard people with autism as being a person with then autism dumped on top of them, um, that it is intrinsically part of who they are. However, um, I work a lot with adults on the spectrum and every single one of them would very, very much love to be able to understand us. That's where the problems come from. We are their problem. Um, and I think their levels of anxiety and depression and other difficulties would, if not vanish, would be hugely helped if there was some way that they could be helped to have a proper understanding of us and our expectations and our intentions. If you could pass the mic just across the aisle, other direction and then I'll come back to the panel after this next point. Thank you. We can't do worst, and there may be um, useful pharmaceutical interventions, and that gives us hope, and I think that's good. But as I think also has been very eloquently put by the panel, there's a complexity here, and we shouldn't forget the whole person and indeed the whole society in this, because there may be a stunning pharmaceutical intervention and I've got no problem with that. I'm not against stunning pharmaceutical interventions. It may be as simple as just care. And on the care point, I'm uh, the auntie of a child with autism, and I also have an uncle who has autism. And the outcomes already for them, I can see, are going to be very different. And it might be, as we've already heard, that they're just different people, even though they have autism in common. Or it might be that we understand better now, and not that we care more now but we care better because we understand more so I think that it can't just be biological intervention it's got to be something else as well and just finally on the care point one thing that my uncle and nephew both share in common is that they're both going to get older so one thing I really would give me great hope is to see a project looking at aging and autism I think that is so important we talk an awful lot about children with autism adults pensioners with autism as well. We need to really think about that. Thank you. I know of at least one big project about ageing with autism that a couple of people in the audience may want to talk about in a moment. But I will come back to the panel. I'll just remind them what's on the table. Um, gentleman from Autistic Nottingham who finds the, the, the characterisation of autism as a disease profoundly offensive. Not, he's not alone. Um, there's the gentleman from the Rational Autistic Society concerned about the availability and cost of cannabis. Um, and there are contrasting views on whether autism is what a person is 
or who a person is. In other words, how autism relates to a person's ipsaity, which is what makes you, uh, you. Um, Virginia, would you like to pick up on those contrasting views? Yeah. Um, I think it was Hilary, wasn't it, Rainey? And yourself, sorry, yes, I've forgotten your name. Um, I have been looking at this in, in my research, and I think it's fair to say there is no consensus. I mean, that's all we can say, <laughs> that um, there are autistic people who, like Ros Blackburn, she said it publicly, so I'm sure she won't mind me quoting her, who says, if you could find a way of taking away someone's autism, maybe in, in the womb before they're born, then that would be a very good thing. And you get others, and hello, Russell. Perfect timing. <laughs> I'm sure um, Russell will say this better than me, but you know, there are others who say, no, it's, it's a blessing. It's who I am, and, and it's great. And there are parents who say, I wish my child wasn't autistic, and they love their children so much. And there are other parents who say, I'm glad they're autistic, and I can't love them without loving their autism. So where do we go? I mean, I think this is one of the big challenges. It's not the sort of issue that you can just put a hands up, you know, let's have a vote and decide, <laughs> is autism integral to identity or isn't it? I mean, there are a whole sociological, philosophical, biological, vast texts around identity. Um, and it's, it's more than opinion, it's how we, we view all these different things. So I'm sort of agnostic, all I can say is that when it comes down to love, when I love autistic people, it's, I don't love them because they're autistic, but it's certainly part of what I love about them. Um, can I just say something about the costs as well? Yes. And then over to others. The costs of autism has been used... I mean, I'm guilty in this. I, I, I encourage the costs of autism studies to initially get off the ground. And I thought they would be useful for economic modelling to show that if... It could, um, autism costs us this much now. If we found more effective interventions, we could save money. And I thought that was good because it was important to good, find good interventions for autism. But what worries me very much now is that autistic people are looked at in terms of how costly they are. And that we should never say about any human being, oh, well, we've got to treat you because you're so expensive. We could say the same about sports injuries. Or public gyms, you know, people should stop using gyms because, my goodness, they're so expensive to run. We shouldn't have street lighting because, you know, it's a shame we can all need to see in the dark. I mean, we can't treat human need and respond to human need in terms of how much it's going to cost people because, you know, slippery slope, that's what Hitler did. I'm not accusing you of being a Nazi, Hillary, but I think there is a genuine slippery slope, and it's usually the powerless in society who get accused okay. of costing a lot, okay. not the powerful. I, I can bring you back in a bit. If, however, on that note, Russell, delighted to have you here. Press that button on your microphone. What, um, I was about to take another couple of points from your fellow panellists. Um, shall I do that and let you catch your breath, and then... Do you want to give us some thoughts? Just let me in when you want to, Sandy. Grand. All right. I'll take a couple of points, then I'll bring you in, and you can. I'll give you a bit, a bit longer because you didn't get to have your say at the beginning. <coughs> Richard, is there anything you'd like to pick up on? No, I want to hear more. You want to hear more? <laughs> um, 
Declan, I am sorry. I'm going to I'm going to return to the to the subject of, of uh, autism and pathology. I'm actually not one of those people who's all, all that offended by uh, uh, autism being part of pathology. But some people are. They regard it as very separate um, from um, the pejorative assumptions that are associated with with uh, pathology. They feel that there's a moral judgment of a person's character rather than just a medical judgment of their functioning um, implicit in. You're much more subtle than the video, <laughs> but implicit in, in all of the, uh, the rhetoric. And um, I'd just be interested in your thoughts on it and how you position yourself and what you think of other people's perspectives on autism and disease. Um, well, I, I think the, the focus of tonight is about treatments, right? Sure. Um, and so I think the, the plain and simple fact for me is that not all individuals with autism or living with autism uh, want treatment or need treatment, or whatever want or need a treatment. The same with you know, the human beings, right? Um, so it's not as if you're going to try and design a treatment f for every individual with autism. Um, so I just don't see that. Maybe I'm coming from the wrong side of the fence. If I just, I mean, I could be more controversial if you want, but I just don't see that as an issue, frankly. Um, I think the main, one of the main issues, actually, was what you alluded to before, is that when you're working in a healthcare setting, one of the key things to ask all the time is, is it this person that's seeking treatment, or is it their family that are seeking treatment? And if so, why is that? And what's the best way you can help them? What's the best intervention? And your best intervention is, the, the first intervention is do nothing, if you don't have to, right? Um, and then, if you feel you can add value, then your intervention is dependent upon what the individual needs are. In some individuals, if we had a treatment for some aspects of ASD, it might be that, but it's going to be a combination of treatments, as I said. Never, never one treatment. Russell, what do you think of the idea of treating autism? And you've seen the video, the EUM's video. We watched it all together earlier, but you've seen uh, it already. So let's hear your take. I, I, I have. And, um, well, Declan's just given me a, um, an immediate inroad. Um, I apologise for being so late. I've, I've come a very long way. It's been a nightmare journey, but it's worth being here because this project is very frightening. Um, and really, I've just got a load of questions. Um, and whether I'm speaking on behalf of Russell Stronic or whether I'm speaking on behalf of Autistic UK, doesn't really matter because we've all just got loads of questions. This whole project seems very opaque. So treating autism, um, hitherto there's been no pharmacological treatment for autism. In fact, there's been a number of studies or reports or pieces of research indicating there is no medication for autism. And, and that's what's worrying about it. It's the idea of treatment for autism. Not treatment for problems that autistic people might face, or the families of autistic children might face, or treatment for a particular something or another associated with autistic children, adults, or whatever. But it's treatment of autism. Now that's a quantum leap, trying to treat autism with drugs. 
um, is something new and it's worrying and it's frightening. It's, it's, it's right next door to cure. It opens the door to some sort of possibility of curing autism. Now that's not the claim being made, but it's like I say, it's a, it, it's a, it's a quantum leap. And if it's a, 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 a medication, um, I realise this is, this is quite far in the future, but if, if something were to appear, some sort of chemical were to appear, and claims could be made that this thing treats autism, um, there's immediate problems of consent, um, firstly around children, and secondly around autistic people who have a learning disability or some sort of diminished capacity in terms of, um, of consenting. So that's treating autism, but it's, al it's also treating autism with the stress on autism. Um, and this is what's really problematical and this is what's really worrying. Even after 70 years after, after the, the concept of autism has been, been formulated, it's still extremely poorly defined. We, we don't really know what it is. In fact, the most useful thing I've heard anybody say on the subject it, recently was Michelle Dawson, um, if you don't know, a, can, a Canadian autistic woman. And I was listening to her about, um, about two years ago making a presentation about applied behavioral analysis, a very technical presentation, and right in the middle of it, she just seemed to zone out and went quiet for five seconds or more, and then seemed to resurface, and she just said, this thing called autism, we don't know what it is. And I was just jumping up and down at the back of the room. Um, that's the most useful thing I've heard anybody say on the subject for years. <laughs> we, we don't know what it is, in spite of the, the, the library of books that have been written on the subject and the tens of thousands of research papers. Um, it's not defined. It's not defined by the diagnostic criteria. It's not, that's why so many books can be written. That's why there's an industry uh, to do with talking about autism. That's why people make a living on the conference circuit. Endlessly talking about this thing called autism because nobody understands what it is, because nobody's taken the trouble to define it. Um, we can come back to you if you like, Russell. Well, could, could I, could I yeah. continue just... Just a little longer, little, yeah, go on. I, I realise I'm jumping into this in, in midstream, but I, I want to try and get this, this point across. That, that What does treating autism mean? It, this, is a, this is an alien concept because it hasn't really been proposed. Certainly not um, this publicly before, although it's not that public, but certainly without such a large amount of money being attached to it. Um, so what does treating autism mean? Right, it's what, what is autism? Um, there's, there's various different answers to that. It's certainly nothing to do with a triad of bloody impairments. 
but to be autistically pedantic about it, it's a syndrome, stupid. That's how it's conceptualized, that's how it's diagnosed. It's literally a tick box exercise. It's a set of observable behaviors, a set of symptoms, which in the case of autism is a set of observable behaviors. If you, if you exhibit enough behaviors in front of the good doctor, then he will tick the boxes and you have the diagnosis. Now that's behavioral, right? And yet there's a medical stroke academic consensus that there is a difference in neurological functioning underlying that behavior. Now, again, being pedantic, autism is the behavior. It is the syndrome. It is the symptoms. That's how it's diagnosed. So what does treating autism mean? Does it mean treating the symptoms? Or does it mean treating the underlying neurology? Because if you're treating the symptoms, then that's just some sort of um, behavioral modification. Uh, that's Skinnerian behavior mod. And that's not gonna make anybody not autistic or whatever. That's just gonna modify their behavior. It's the pretending to be normal scenario. If you're treating the underlying neurology, then again, to be pedantic, this, this project is being, um, is making some sort of misleading claim because it's not treating the autism, which is the behavior, it's treating the underlying neurology. Now, God forbid we should start to use the language of autism to talk about neurology because the language of autism is all to do with psychology. I'll wind you up now, Russell. And that's my... Which one is it? Is it treating the, is it treating the behavior or is it treating the neurology? And the final point, Sandy, Quickly. is the, the legal situation. We've now, in, uniquely in this country, we've got the Autism Act. And the Autism Act uses the, 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 the language of um, adults with autism in England. There's no legal definition of what an adult with autism is. Therefore, we're forced to the conclusion that in any sort of practical situation, like a court case or any sort of uh, dispute or any sort of wrangle, it will mean, it has to mean, somebody with a diagnosis. Okay, okay, right. I'm going to come back to the audience, take a lot of points, keep them brief. I'll, um, Russell, I won't give his full introduction, uh, but he is the chair of Autistic UK, which is a campaigning organisation run by autistic people for autistic people. Can we take a microphone right to the very back? And I'll slowly come forward. But let's start with the people at the back here. The gentleman in the stripy top up there. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name's Alex Wilkinson. Uh, I'm an autistic diabetic. Um, <laughs> and my question goes to Richard. Um, you mentioned having theory of mind. I just wondered whether you considered your language when speaking to autistic people because sometimes when people think they're articulate, they're actually just being verbose. <laughs> okay. Um, there were some people with their hands up in the front of this back row. Yes, these two, so if we could take these two points, actually there's three of them. We'll take all three of these, this row here, and then I'll move to a different, completely different part of the room. Please. Thank you. I'm, my name is Leo Capella, and technically I'm an expert advisor for Ambitious About Autism, but I'm in here in my own personal 
capacity as a professional and campaigner on the autistic spectrum. I don't, having listened to some of the earlier comments, let me make it crystal clear. If people are on the spectrum are suffering, I do not want to deny them a path out. But I have to say this, as a citizen on the spectrum, I don't want my rights to be denied under any system that comes with any treatment, be it medical or social, because we're not just talking about science, we're talking about laws. Another quick point, I mm -hmm. find it ironic that it is October the 2nd when we are coming rather close to Halloween. It would be rather a good time to think about the historical ghosts around not just autism, but disability in general, such as uh, the T4 project mm -hmm. and also in Milan, because there are a lot of ghosts around people and we need to deal with them as we deal with this. Okay. Ne gentlemen, next to you. Hi, uh, my name's Seth. Uh, I'm also autistic and diabetic. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, if anyone's got a spare pancreas around, I'd, I'd love that. Um, but anyway, going back to something that Richard said, and who is the treatment for? And I wonder if we're looking at the wrong people for giving the treatment to. Shouldn't we not be thinking about the rest of society and trying to get them to understand us? Right. Because from my point of view, that would be the best cure for autism. Okay. Um, and, yep. Please. I, I'm autistic, but I'm not diabetic, sorry. The, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I'd like to bring it back a bit uh, about EU aims, uh, uh, which kind of is at the end of this discussion. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit surprised. I mean, so this debate happened two years, so halfway through the project, and we were told at the beginning, so it's not so much to influence this project, but to influence the next ones. So, I mean, how come we were not involved at all at the beginning of this project, or be, not even at the beginning of this project, but before this project uh, uh, existed? And there's been some comments on what the autistic community might want to be researched in uh, uh, before. And so that doesn't seem to have been taken into account at all. And there has been no talk at all of what has been achieved during these two years uh, uh, at all, which is a bit surprising. I mean, that's, uh, you would have thought that's that would have been something that uh, uh, people would have been proud of, I guess, of, the, of what has been done. Uh, that's a bit surprising as well. And the, the video, uh, I thought, was, I mean, was quite offensive in many ways. I mean, the, the, I mean, it already pointed out that the autistic child was not at all interviewed for any reason, I mean, and we don't know why. And, and what was presented, I mean, as kind of autistic, was the, the, the mice model. And the, uh, and, and the, the key characteristic is running away from people, uh, which was not the case of the autistic kid in the video. Uh, she was not running away. And, and I think some of us being here shows that we're not running away either. So it's kind of, uh, it doesn't make much sense. Uh, okay. Um, I'm going to come down to a couple of people here, if that's okay. So I'll start off, uh, this lady with her hand up here, she's been very patient. Thank you. My name's Sally Higginbottom. I'm a GP, but I'm here in a personal capacity as the mother of an autistic boy. Um, 
the thing that one thing that hasn't been mentioned is is the the potential downside for identifying genes which will be followed rapidly by identifying prenatal testing and if downs is anything to go by terminations with very rapidly um, i'm not saying that's not a reason to look for genes but it, it's something we should be upfront about particularly because obviously terminating an autistic affected pregnancy is something that's going to affect the autistic person involved, but mm. it's also potentially going to affect the gene pool for all of us because my husband is a mathematician. The, the risk for autism in children of mathematicians, engineers, accountants, finance people is much, much higher. It, it seems that some of these genes prove really useful for people who like to focus on detail, who do lots of useful things. Um, so I don't think we need to lose those genes as a population as well as in individuals. Okay. I'd like to pass the microphone down to the gentleman here, but while it's moving, I just want to, I want to make a quick point in response to that, um, since I work in genetics and assisted conception. I mean, the difference between prenatal selection for something like Down syndrome, which is, you know, it's chromosomal, it's as significant as can be, and something as complex and poorly understood as the genetics of autism is quite vast. Um, such attempts to do prenatal, supposedly prenatal um, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis for autism as, have, as exist as, uh, in Australia, they're just sex selection. They're using sex as a proxy for autism, and they're, they're understanding population statistics very, very poorly um, when they do so. Um, I, I would not... That's a quite a distant prospect you're talking about. It's not an invalid point, but I just thought I'd add that perspective. Please. Um, Michael Fitzpatrick, I have a 22-year-old son with autism, and I'm also a medical practitioner. I also work with the charity Autistica. Somebody asked about ageing and autism. I'd just like to say in passing that we've just launched a major research project based at the University of Newcastle on precisely this question, so if you look and check that out. I think one issue that's been rather neglected is the question of capacity. I don't think anybody has any inclination to impose treatments for autism on people who have the capacity to refuse them. That's no problem. The issue is... <laughs> Only those who don't. Well, the, is the issue is... You know, my son has no capacity to make a judgment over... So that's all right. Let those people are fair game. Well, fair game. You know, I'm not as dismissive as you are of Lorna, Lorna Wing's, uh, the late Lorna Wing's uh, trial of impairments. I would have thought that was much more... Hold on, Russell. Russell, yeah. Russell, I'll come back to you. Just hold your fire. Sorry, Zanny. My son suffers from those impairments in spades, and they have a major con consequences of the quality of his life. He experiences epileptic fits. He experiences... Uh, episodes of self-injury, if you try and stop him injuring himself, he will uh, attack other people. Now, those are problems which it seems to me, uh, you know, somebody said there's nobody clamouring for EU aims. I'm clamouring for effective treatments for those things which would have a dramatic effect on the quality of his life. And I think it's, it seems to me it's people much too casually dismiss this very substantial population of people with autism who are very severely affected by these sort of issues. Virginia mentioned in passing Risperidone. Now, it seems to that almost the entire population of young people with learning difficulties are currently on risperidone. People are probably aware of this. Uh, on the quiet, generally speaking. It doesn't work, and it has very well anyway. The evidence for it is not very good, as Declan has said. Uh, it's better than other things, but it's, it's pretty useless, and it has very significant side effects. So, you know, people said, do you want more research into, into finding more, you know, into what is the treatments that might work, or... or Okay. I'm going to take some very quick responses from the panel and go out again. Sandy, can I come, come back with uh, that? You, you had a big uh, crack at it just now, Russell. Let me start with Declan and then come back to you. Is that okay? Because you also had a, had a big go at him and he deserves 
It deserves a right of reply. Um, and any points you want to pick up from the audience? Actually, the big, the, I think the main, I'm not going to have a quick boast fest on you know, the, the outputs of um, our proposal so far, but suffice to say we've been externally audited and we're the most productive, highest impact of any IMI project, however you measure it. So you know, that's the impact we've had so far. Um, in terms of the other issues that have been brought up, I think the incredibly important point is what it was about capacity and individuals who have intellectual disability and, and don't have capacity. A, they're very frequently excluded from most trials, and B, they're often badly treated, even using current approaches. And whatever it is that we come up with, whatever kind of treatment that is, whether it be a cognitive behavioural approach, educational or pharmacological approach, we've got to be absolutely sure that we've got the issues that you're speaking to completely covered and just absolutely vital. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll move across the table. Um, Richard, there was a question about why this, uh, why this ethical discussion and public discussion is happening two or three years into the project. Oh, I didn't think you were going to ask me that one. Um, well, I am. I was going to, well, first of all, let me apologise for my um, inept joke about theory of mind. I didn't mean to give offence. For what it's worth, I don't subscribe to the theory of mind theory. Um, I was more trying to deflect attention from my own social ineptness rather than make a joke about people with autism, so I apologise if I gave offence. Uh, I am driven to social ineptness and making bad jokes when embarrassed. Um, but we're not here to talk about my psychopathology, so... Um, the, the question that I will... I'm being a politician here, not answering the question asked, but I also wanted to say something about why we're looking to think about treating people with autism and some of the answers to that come in the questions that follow. But I do take very seriously your point about why we don't treat the neurotypical. Because in my own experience as a parent, I've very, very rarely had problems with my son's behaviour. But I have oftentimes had problems with reactions to it from other people. And I often want to say, no, come on, you're the one that needs help, not him. So I, I completely buy what you're saying. Now, what was the question you asked me? Um, well, it was a question from the back about why um, stakeholders or autistic people, that's a horrible word, stakeholders, why uh, autistic people and their friends and families um, are being consulted halfway into the project. Not at the beginning. Not at the beginning. I think that's a fair question. I think Declan may want to respond as well, but there is... It's something about the way we do science today is we've come to understand relatively late in the day that doing science about people without their involvement is a bad thing. But as we've only come to terms with this relatively late in the day, we often proceed as normal and then go, hang on, we've been breaking our own promises here. And so we have to hold our hands up to that one. We should have involved people earlier, and we didn't. And there it is. Okay. I'll move across the table. Um, Virginia, well, you made the point that, you know, there isn't really a constituent, necessarily a constituency clamouring, and the point was made quite forcefully that in, from one perspective, perhaps there is. Um, and I absolutely relate 
through what you're saying, um, I've been on the receiving end and witnessed similar behaviours in my son. And I think it links in with Russell's point, though. I am clamouring for certain things that will help him not self-injure and then not be aggressive. But they're not, in terms of the diagnostic statistical manual, they are not the core symptoms of autism. They might be a byproduct. And I think if there was a commitment to looking at the issues that cause problems for autistic people and all the people who love them and, and are with them, that would be to treat some things, yes, that maybe desperately need treating, but it's, it is actually conceptually different from treating autism given current definitions of autism. That's, that's really what I'm trying to get at. Okay. Russell. Okay, two, two points. To address your point, it's, Virginia's already said it, it's the difference between treating autism and treating the problems that autistic people have. I've got no problems with treating self-injurious behaviour, epilepsy, incontinence, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, that's not the same as treating autism. And I'm still asking the question, what does treating autism mean? What does treating mean and what does autism mean? Because neither of those things are clear to me. And to address, is it Michael to your right? I've got Richard here. Sorry, Richard. Um, that was actually Michael you responded to just now. Apologies. Um, you might not have had a problem with your son, and Virginia, probably not. I've certainly never had any sort of problem with my son's behaviour in public. He's 24 years old now. Oh, he's autistic, obviously. Um, never for one minute, never for one second, have I had a problem with the way that Jimmy behaves. But I know that an awful lot of parents do. They feel shame. They feel embarrassment. They feel personal shame. They feel family shame. There's all sorts of negative stuff. And this, again, is a worrying aspect of this. Are we going to start prescribing drugs to children, potentially very young, very small children, on the basis of parental embarrassment? Is it going to become a situation like with the ADHD children, where the school begins to put pressure on the parents, medicate your child, or else blah, blah, blah? Excluded, yeah. Okay. 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 So the issue I wanted to come back to is how do you engage with the community? And it, I don't think there's a right answer to that. And I know we struggled with it all along. I can tell you from the, from the get-go, we closely linked in with Autism Europe, who's a, a representation group across Europe of individuals with autism. And we also uh, link very closely with major charity for individuals with autism called Autism Speaks and got their input and they are tremendously helpful. But on an ongoing basis, how do you do it? Do we, how do we link into the unheard, which would be, say, very severely affected individuals with an intellectual disability who make up perhaps up to about 30% of affected individuals? Or do we talk more to the more vocal minority who are you know, doing extremely well? So it's, it's hard to know how you do it best. I don't know what the right answer is. And so I because think it's yet, difficult, you don't bother at all. At, hold it, Russell. We'll come back. We'll come back to you. Um, was, did you want to make a point? Well, thanks. Probably a bit to comment in a 
question, although uh, Declan's probably answered a bit. So, um, my name's Christine Swaby, I'm Chief Executive of Autistica, and one or two people have, have mentioned our organisation. Uh, we're funding research into autism. Um, first of all, I'd just like to say I think the dialogue is great, because my feeling is when you sit down and talk to people, the differences that seem insurmountable are actually not nearly as big as you think they are, and a lot of it is about language and entrenched positions and so on. And I think once you really sit down and talk, there's more, more commonality between even the people who've come from different perspectives on the stage than you would otherwise think. So well done for putting on this event. I think it's really great. Um, I absolutely agree with everything everyone has said about engagement. I mean, uh, Virginia, you were really passionate about that and saying how important it is to have people with autism engaged. And I think that is absolutely fundamental to getting good research and research that people want and research that addresses the issue of what are we researching it for? Well, let's find out from people who are in got engaged in the research program. So I think that's fundamental. That's what we're doing. Mike was kind enough to mention the aging program that we've launched in Newcastle. We're employing people with autism in that program as part of the program. So they're actually embedded in it. So you can make a real difference. I think my question is a little bit with Declan is that it's easy to engage with some people but it's not always easy to engage with others, like perhaps Mike's son, for example. How do we take account of individuals like that and learn more about their experiences and what will make a difference to their quality of life? And I, I don't think we begin to have the answer to that, but I think we need to surface it as an issue. Otherwise, research and views about research can be sort of dominated by um, the articulate um, you know, maybe they're even the majority, but there's a lot of people who are looking for help and solutions, and we need to figure out ways to engage them. So, Can we go a couple of rows back? Well, if we make our points concise now, I'll fit as many people in as possible. Lady in green there. Thank you. Um, my name's Rachel. Um, I'm on the autism spectrum too, and I'm probably quite unique in my perspective in that I'm quite high-functioning, and I also have quite a lot of difficulties with everyday life, and quite like some help with it. And it's not a separate mental health, health disorder. It's not a, a separate learning difficulty. It's actually the bits of, the, of autism, maybe not that mentioned in the DSM. Um, and I wanted to come back to the question that was asked at the beginning about is there anything that's across the spectrum that's inherently debilitating? And I think often it is, ends up being the social aspect that is most discussed. And I don't find that inherently debilitating. It's difficult, for sure, but it is not inherently debilitating. What I think is inherently debilitating is difficulties with initiating, switching tasks, and stay, like having difficulty then switching to, to something else, that actually that affects all that areas of my life. That affects my study, that affects if I want to work, that affects lots of things. And I think that that's probably true for a lot of people, and it's just not talked about. Okay. Um, if we can, do we have a mic on this side of the room still? Yeah. Can you come just down here? Thank you. Oh, two points here, but I'll keep an eye on this side for who wants it next. There. Hi, uh, I'm a mom of uh, a nine-year-old who was diagnosed last year with autism. Uh, it's high-functioning autism, and he's a lovely child. He's doing very well with his uh, maths and uh, history, etc. The problems he faces are similar to this other lady in terms of, you know, uh, being a bit clumsy and, and uh, maybe, you know, slow in his processing speed. So though he reads at the level of a 15-year-old, of a he can't really 
uh, put together the thoughts in a coherent way in terms of, an, uh, of essay writing, and that's part of the normal educational system. Uh, my worry for him is that though he's high-functioning, I, I feel that there's no support at all with the NHS for him to achieve his potential. Other than the diagnosis, we were, you know, everybody washes their hands off and then they say, okay, now you deal with it. Uh, I, we, I think as parents, we've, we've sort of become experts by looking at things ourselves, and we've really changed his behavior and, and made him reduce his meltdowns. We've made him improve in his uh, dexterity, and he's come a long way in his speech as well, but we've done everything ourselves. And uh, even insurance uh, companies uh, wash their hands off because they say it's a developmental uh, issue. So high-functioning uh, autism is really stuck in the middle. Okay. Uh, Gentlemen next to you, then I'll go here. Yep, you first. Yep. Yes, please. Uh, yeah, my name is Adam Feinstein, uh, autism researcher, uh, author of History of Autism, and father of uh, a wonderful young man with autism. Um, I, I, my son, by the way, Mike, he is on Risperidone. I'm, I'm convinced it has helped, I have to say. But I, I'm not a fan of medication in general. But, uh, and, I, and also, I'd say, like to say to Russell, Lorna Wing herself said to me, quite not long before she died, that uh, we still don't know what autism is. She, that's a quote from Lorna Wing. I owe you a pint, by the way. Okay. <laughs> Good. Um, something that hasn't been brought up is, um, and I think it should be, and I, I, I usually try to, is the danger of um, charlatans peddling cures for autism. And not just that, but uh, charlatans peddling cures uh, are purporting to be based on scientific evidence. Mm. And there's a, an appalling example in the States, some of you, I'm sure a lot of you may know, of Lupron. Lupron <laughs> is a, cast, a castration drug. It's used to castrate sexual offenders in America, but of course it reduces testosterone. So what the Gaias, the son, father and son Gaias, they pointed to Simon Baron Cohen's studies, which have shown uh, that um, from the test on uh, 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 shown there's uh, high levels of testosterone. And they said, well, we're going to use that and we're going to uh, use it to, uh, to su support this appalling use of castration drug Lupron on autistic children and the parents go ahead and take it. So I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to know what uh, EU Ames is going to do about that. And, uh, I mean, the latest study we've just heard from Johns Hopkins is that broccoli yes. may yeah. help. So that kind of thing. I'm just wondering what we're going to do with that. Okay. So what would he, <laughs> okay. you know, what they're going to feed. We could change all our diets in the school. Okay. Lady here. Hello. Is it, is it on? <laughs> um, just a couple of points to bring together, actually. But Russell said something about um, he hoped that parents wouldn't be so mean to medicate their children just because they felt shame. And just the point that the lady in the green made there about she would like the opportunity to be able to do certain things or, or that, of that ilk. And um, somebody over there as well, I think, said something about... I can't remember. Anyway, my point was that I am very close... I won't mention, but I'm very close to someone who has autism. And their mother... Um, oh, actually, I remember what it was now. The person who said about how in the second year of their son's life, how she sort of started to see all the changes... And I think, you, know, you, you must have seen like, your son's potential. And again, this lady, she, she might see her potential if she had help, for example. And I really, I know that that little boy's mother would absolutely love to uh, sort of see what her son could do if he was actually sort of more physically able, I suppose. To, maybe that's, yeah. And I just think 
I really hope no one would think she was evil because she would be medicating him because I think she would so love to see him do certain things. And okay. Um, we have someone with a microphone here. Yes, please go ahead. Yeah, um, my name is uh, Eva Lord. I'm working here at King's College and I'm also working at the, uh, as part of the EAMS uh, project. Um, I have two comments that I would like to share. Um, the first is from listening to various different um, comments and suggestions and responses is it seems to me that they fall into two fundamental categories. One of them is to do with fundamental ethical questions where there will always be different opinions about. Um, the second group is about, and this is my sometimes pedantic nature and also detailed focused nature, is that I noted a lot of um, inaccuracies about um, what your aims is doing uh, and how it is doing. So that is to do with some of the comments on the biomarkers. We don't only look for one biomarker for everyone with ASD, but driven partly by genetics, are now more and more convinced that there will likely be different kinds of biomarkers at different levels. Um, there's also some misconception, I think, on the animal models, uh, also perhaps sometimes on you know, what is meant with economic costs. I mean, people are also concerned with um, the loss of potential of people that is behind that, the loss of opportunities for parents to have some work, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think EU Ames maybe can contribute to that by trying to clarify some of these, um, what I think are inaccurate interpretations on perhaps limited um, numbers of information available from this project. Okay. And so finally, if that's yep. okay, I just wanted to say something also about the heterogeneity of autism researchers, um, because <laughs> we are not, when we, when we are talking about power, I think there's a very vast divide in terms of power from among the people who are working in autism research. Not everybody in, in academia will benefit from a treatment that is being developed and will work very hard, and perhaps not even everybody who's working in industry will directly benefit financially from any treatment that is being developed. And so when this power dimension, which is very important, is being discussed, it might also be useful to, consi to consider who to address uh, with that in particular. Okay, thank you. I'm really sorry for anyone who didn't get in. We're running out of time here. Um, on that last point, I want to say, I'm sure there's more EU aims could do to explain its work to the general public. This event is a small example of that. Um, it is worth people going the other direction and looking at what is there on the EU AIMS website, familiarising themselves with the different work packages that, that the research makes up. So even if you disagree with it or you have questions about it, you, you, know, you have some sense of, of, of what it is we're grappling with. Uh, so I'm sure, I think there's more can be done on both sides. People can find out more about it. EU AIMS can do better at explaining itself. We're nearly out of time. I'm going to ask our speakers to do two things. Uh, I'm going to ask them to give us their closing thoughts for the evening. They can pick up on anything the audience has said. And I'm going to ask them to explain what you should do uh, if you want to find out more about their work and if you want to get involved in their work, whether that's in relation to um, Autistic UK and Ambitious About Autism or whether that's in relation to EU aims and its uh, Ethics Advisory Board. Um, I'm going to use my prerogative as chair just before I bring them in to say that if you want to find out more about my work, um, the... Uh, and the charity I work for is organising an event on the evening of the 6th of November, much like this, a free-to-attend event about the 100,000 Genomes Project, the current government 
project to sequence uh, 100,000 genomes from 75,000 patients with um, common cancers and rare diseases um, with a view to ultimately making genomics a routine part of medicine, which may have some relationship to what we're discussing here this evening. Anyway, without any further um, ado, Russell, can you give us your closing thoughts and can you tell people what they should do if they want to get involved in Autistic UK? If they want to get in, involved in Autistic UK, there's a bunch of um, leaflets on the table as you depart. Our contact details are on that. Get in touch with us. Join up. Membership is free. So that's as far as that goes. Um, look at our website. Um, I want to say that to have another crack at this to this project to, to put this amount of money into something, into, into putting research into treatment of something which is not defined and for which the causation is not known just seems like um, at best pouring money down the drain and at worst um, God only knows. Um, I fail to see how you can research into something that is not where you haven't defined your parameters. And as I say, after 70 years, um, we have no notion as to what this thing called autism is all about. We, we know the lived experience, autism as she is lived, we know it's not defined by the diagnostic criteria. We know that the triad of impairments is not a quick and easy way of understanding what autism is all about. Um, which is part and parcel of um, the acknowledgement we've had from, from EU aims that um, there has been no involvement of the so-called autistic community, which I don't think really exists, but let's say the autistic population in this. Uh, an event like this, which we're very grateful for, Sandy, is very markedly too little, far too late. So I want to ask, what are the plans for involvement of the autistic population of Europe in the rest of this project. And let me give you my, my take on what's going on here. Quickly. Um, because I still don't understand this thing because it's, it's, it's opaque as hell. There is a complete lack of transparency, which is, and part of that is the complete lack of involvement of the autistic population of Europe. It looks very much like using EU money, which is partially British taxpayers' money, match funded, as it were, by the multinational pharmaceutical companies to use autistic Europeans as test subjects for development of drugs which we then, if, if developed, would then be released on the international market and the largest market in the world is America. So it, seems, it seems a little odd to me to be using Europeans to develop some, something which would then be <coughs> flogged to the Yanks. Okay. Virginia, uh, respond to that, and also if people want to know more about or get involved in Ambitious About Autism. Ambitious About Autism is on the internet. I think if you Google it and go to Ambitious About Autism, you'll find out. I don't need to advertise it again, but um, feel free if you're interested. 
Um, taking it forward, I think there is clearly more conversation and dialogue is needed, both for EU aims to clarify what it's doing, given your comment, and clearly for um, the autistic community, and I mean autistic individuals and for those who do not speak and who have in profound intellectual impairments, it has to include those who love them. They're, usually that will be their families. Um, I think it takes funding to facilitate people getting together and looking at the really big ethical problems what really are the problems affecting autistic people? What are the priorities? What treatment priorities are appropriate for us all, be it pharmaceutical, societal, etc.? There's been a, it's much harder to fund people getting together to establish priorities than it is to fund technical, high-powered science. And I would like to think that what we need to take away from today is mutual commitment to jointly identify some shared understanding of priorities. And, you know, George, you're better than war, war. There clearly is mutual misunderstanding going on, and I hold my hand up as guilty as charged. But you can't blame people for misunderstanding on its own. We have to try and find ways of getting to understand each other more. Thank you. Richard, what are your closing thoughts, and how can people get involved in the EU AIMS Ethics Advisory Board? Or have some input into it? My closing thoughts is, it's a kind of unthought really, is that I found this discussion today extremely interesting, uncomfortable at certain points, and I think that the most important thing for me and us to do is to go away and think more, um, which is generally a good policy in life, think first before you speak. Um, as I've been reminded this evening already. And um, we will be thinking more and hard across Europe and with discussion with EU aims, because we are the Ethics Advisory Board is an independent part of the governance of the EU aims project. We're not involved in its day-to-day -day work. Um, in how best to learn from the advice that you've given us this evening. So that's one of my concluding thoughts. In terms of how to get involved with us, um, write to us. We're easily found, either myself or Ilana. Um, I'm at Queen Mary. You can find me on Queen Mary's web page fairly easily. I'm also on Twitter. Um, the usual rules about Twitter apply. Be nice. <laughs> if you can't be nice, at least be polite. Uh, I try to be. I don't always succeed. And um, we would welcome hearing from you. Okay. Declan, you get the final word. Your final thoughts of the evening, and you've heard about the ethics, but if people want to know more about EU aims more generally, get in, have input into it more generally, tell us how. Okay. So I'll start the last bit first, if that's yeah. okay. If you want to find out more about EU aims or get involved, there's the website, the web link, and our email addresses, etc. So please feel free to contact us. Uh, in wrapping up, I mean, I'd just like to um, thank Russell for making exactly the point for why EU aims is in existence. We are not treating people with autism. We are not testing new treatments for autism. 
We are not designing new treatments for autism. You should be applauding us, Russell. We're doing exactly what you want us to do, which is to understand autism and define autism better. So that would then lead us on to progress. So with those thoughts, I'll finish. Um, thank you very much. Okay. Before we thank our speakers, very quick, final very quick announcements. Uh, besides the speakers, I want to thank everyone who's worked to put this event together. Um, that includes EU Ames and its Ethics Advisory Board and my colleagues there. And it also includes staff and volunteers at, here at the Institute of Psychiatry and at King's College London uh, who have worked hard on putting this event together. I want to thank you, the audience, for attending and for putting your questions and comments from the floor. And you've heard from everyone about how to get involved, if you want to know more. If you'd like to continue this discussion informally over a drink, uh, we're inviting you all to join us in the Phoenix pub, which is not, not, even, not just adjacent to Denmark Hill train station, it's actually part of the structure of the building of, of Denmark Hill train station, so hopefully you can't miss it. And finally, I'd like to thank our wonderful panel of speakers. Thank you. Thank you.